Welcome to Truth and Reconciliation with Buki Shonoga. This program is inspired by the brutal murder of George Floyd and is rooted on the premise that without candid and uncomfortable conversations on systemic racism in America, we cannot begin the process of healing and resolve. This show also presents the African diaspora perspectives on the transatlantic slave trade and institutionalized institutional racism in America. Today's topic is how does cultural identity impact race and racism in, and racism in America? My guest is Mojuba Olu, Olufunke Okome, an international political economist whose regional specialization is on the African continent. Educated at the University of Ibadan, Nigeria, Long Island University, New York, and Columbia University, New York. She's a professor of political science at Brooklyn College. She co-founded Bring Back Our Girls, New York City, and is founder and editor of Enrique Rido, a journal of African migration. Thank you, Dr. Okome, for taking the time to join me this afternoon. My pleasure. And uh, this is why I've invited you, because you're a wealth of knowledge and, and your resume, I couldn't even, I couldn't read the, read the entire thing. But this is enough to tell our audience why, you know, you're one of the most ideal guests on this show in terms of your background. So how do you identify in the context of this topic, how does cultural identity impact race and racism in America? How do you identify? Well, you know, um, I think of myself as a Nigerian in America, but I also, I mean, I think it's impossible for one's identity to be unidimensional. So I'm a black woman, and I think in the context of the United States, um, this is the first thing that people would um, think about me because my other identities would not be that obvious to them. So they would think, well, this is a black woman. And I identify as such in the first place out of solidarity mm -hmm. with people of African descent in the United States. Secondly, I mean, frankly, um, if we're thinking about um, the ways in which human beings' skin color is described, I'm a black woman, you know, but I'm also from the, I'm a, you know, I'm a recent immigrant to the United States, even though I've been here for 39 years, um, because people would never let you forget that you are not from here, you know. Mm. So America is not, you know, people think, oh, this is a wel welcoming country and whatever. I haven't felt that welcome. But don't get me wrong. I have made friendships here. Um, I had both my children here. Um, my profession, my professional life, with the exception of... Um, the brief work that I did after graduating with my bachelor's degree in Nigeria, you know, my uh, whole professional life has been here in the United States. And I have struggled with the challenges of what it means to be a black woman who um, went to one of the <laughs> best uh, universities to secure my PhD and then I'm teaching at um, the City University of New York which is a um, 
I think which has a distinguished history also in the American Academy uh, as a place that provides higher education. And I'm a full professor, which is not anything to sneeze at. So I'm accomplished. I'm comfortable materially. I live in a nice place. But America would never let you forget that you are not from here. Okay? And I think it didn't, you know, a lot of the um, stuff that I am saying would not have been as obvious to people if I were saying it before the murder of George Floyd and before the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter right. protests that happened in the aftermath, you know. Yes. And even as we're speaking, you know, there are Black people in this country who are experiencing racism, who are experiencing marginalization, whose experience of marginalization um, has meant that when you look at the number of infections from COVID, the number of deaths from COVID, the number of people that are unemployed, the number of people that are doing the frontline work of not being able to say, well, you know, I don't want to be infected, so I'm going to stay in my own space and control who moves in and out of it. They have to be on the job every day. They're black people. They're people who are non-white. And so I, I identify with all these people because I see them as my people. I see my, you know, because for me, my own personal comfort or whatever it is that I've accomplished is of no consequence when there are people like me who are being put through the ringer as we speak, through no fault of their own, but from the way in which politically, socially, and in terms of how the economy is managed in this country, you have to prove that you're entitled to, to the benefits of citizenship, to the benefits of being thought of as a professional, to the benefit of being respected for the knowledge you have. You know, you have to continually convince people that you are worth, you know, <laughs> given, being given the benefit of the doubt as a possibly good person, you know. So it's very tiring, it's very exhausting, and it's very unnecessary. So as, an, as you know, um, the whole thing about the U.S. and what it is, the city on the hill, American exceptionalism, I have never bought it because it doesn't line up with my experience. So I, you know, then people will say, oh, well, you're so accomplished. But they don't know how much pain I went through to get to where I am. They don't know how much frustration I went through. They don't know how frustrating it feels for me to be a full professor. And even when I walk into Brooklyn College, if people don't know me, right, they're not going to accord me the same level of respect and the same level of, um, you know, um, acceptance as they would to my white colleague who may be actually junior to me because I'm very senior to many people at Brooklyn College. But people would never think of me as the one who is the authority, you know, as the one who is the accomplished one. So thank you for uh, a lot of the hype of America is just lost on me. Right, for being so candid.
you know, thank you. This is pretty deep. In the context of what you're saying, Amer America will never let you forget that you're not from here. Now, let's sort of intersect that with what's been happening this week, the development this week with the Democratic National Convention, with Kamala Harris and Michelle Obama's powerhouse speech that blew the roof off of the house. So do you think black women can help redeem America? I mean, you identify as black, I identify as black, but what you're saying is somewhat in, in contrast to what happened this week. Are we, is, it isn't in contrast. False, false it isn't in contrast because if you look at those women you spoke about, right. okay, and think about the first, um, think about the, um, the Republican Party and Sarah Palin. Right. Compare Sarah Palin with Kamala Harris. No okay? <laughs> and then let me, I mean, tell me that those two women intellectually, that they're on the same level, okay? Tell me that intellectually, Sarah Palin and uh, Michelle Obama are on the same level. So in order for you to be, um, to be recognized as a black person, right. not just woman, you have to do twice or three times or quadruple as much as your white colleagues, you know? Yes. And then, you see, until the day that it would be no big deal, when a black woman accomplishes something because it is so normal, it is so routine, then we haven't made any change. And then I also want to say that black women have actually always been doing what Kamala and Michelle did this past week. They just were not, they were, they were not acknowledged for it. This is why Fanny Luhema said, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired because you would fight you would do you would vote you know people struggled for the right to vote and they were put down they were oppressed they were you know they were they were brutalized they were treated in very inhumane ways so it's not that black women haven't been doing right. it is that america you know because i think of the catalyzing influence of these deaths that happened and it's not just George Floyd, it's a whole bunch of people, you know. This has, and then the, the Black Lives Movement, uh, the Black Lives Matter Movement, and also I think this COVID uh, crisis that we are in, there's an opening now where America is possibly willing to do the right thing and embrace Black women who have always been accomplished who have always done the right thing, who have always stood up and spoken truth to power. So, you know, I really don't think, oh, now these brilliant black women are now emerging. They have always been black, brilliant women. They just were not embraced as such. They were not given the same opportunities. And I dare say, even now, it's not the same opportunities because if you look at those women, I mean, they went to the best schools. They have the best records when it comes to professionalism. Right. And then, you know, what do we compare them with in terms of other people that have been lifted up in this country? So, you know, I'm not impressed. I don't look at superficials, okay? I look at real serious foundational issues, you know, because all the hype does not persuade me. Right. And for me, America still has a long way to go. 
to prove itself that it's living up to its creed as established in its constitution. It hasn't done it yet. It's so making you, baby steps. So are you hopeful and should we be hopeful? I'm always hopeful. I think, you know, hope, constraining hope is that the we, weapon of the powerless, okay? Yes. So, and then in this life, the only way you are going to be motivated in the midst of a long-term tenacious struggle is to be hopeful. So I'm always hopeful. Right. You know, but it goes beyond my hope. It goes also to America living up to the letter of the law. You know, its constitution is the law of the land. And then the spirit of the law. And, you know, so, you know, you read from my bio that I, 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 I look at the meaning of inclusive citizenship. It is not inclusive citizenship when, um, you know, if a portion of your population always have to prove that they have the right to breathe, that they have the right to, to be considered, you know, equally uh, for opportunities in the economy, that when they go to take loans in banks, they're not going to be treated in ways that other people like white people are being treated. You know, there's a lot of documentation. You go for job interviews, there's a, there's a Princeton study that shows that a black man with a perfect record, flawless, and a, you know, is not going to be, to be treated as well as a white man with a criminal record when it comes to job opportunities. You know, when America stops doing this kind of nonsense, then I would say, yes, this country is doing what it ought to do. So it goes beyond my hope, although I'm hopeful. It goes to America living up to the spirit and the letter of its own laws. And this is what Martin Luther King also called, you know. This is what um, a lot of the civil rights um, movement and the black, you know, uh, freedom uh, struggle um, activists have called for. This is what uh, John Lewis called for. Right. The struggle is not over. Absolutely. And the, the onus is on America and then on the white majority in this country to do the right thing because they, they're still not doing the right thing. Thank you. In a relative democracy, so that's where we are now. In other words, people can go to the poll and vote. We had the same America that voted Donald Trump in four years ago. Obama was in for eight years and they thought he wasn't the right president for this country. Now they've had a taste of someone different, right? So in terms of being hopeful and power changes hand, I, I'm, I'm making a case that this is where we are now, not just my case, that in a relative democracy that America supposedly is, now we have the chance to vote another, another, you know, another president in. Now a ticket that's more hopeful than ever before, a black female uh, to an immigrant parent. And then you, we, have a, we have a president that is being agreed on that is the polar opposite of you know, Donald Trump when we talk about empathy and doing what's right for America, for justice, economic justice, social justice, you name it. So do you think that this is, uh, in your view, a, a sort of new beginning to... I want to tell you um, how I'm thinking about this. Right. Um, so I think we would have to 
really be um, drinking some strange Kool-Aid, right? To think that, um, you know, people, so the current president did not win majority of the votes. He won as a result of the electoral college. The electoral college was set up under the dispensation that said that African-Americans were not full human beings, okay? And so the rules that are being followed are still following that logic. So I dare say there's a serious problem with democracy in America, okay? Okay. But, you know, there are people who use the minimalist de definition of democracy, which means well, as long as people have the right to vote, and then they have the right to run for office. And then there's a consensus among elites that these are the rules that are going to be followed. Then you have democracy. If that's what you're looking at, and then democracy is a majoritarian system, which means the majority carries the day, right? So if that's what you're looking at, even when black people were being presented actively right. from voting, as citizens of this country, America was a democracy, Abby. Yes. I don't think so. I think democracy is not worth anything if you do not consider minority rights. And I'm not the only person that says so. There's this very brilliant Canadian scholar, Will Kim Laker, who has done a lot of work on inclusion in democracies and the right of, of, of minorities. Mind you, women also were excluded from voting for a good amount of uh, years in this country, okay? And there are ways also in which American democracy is not fully inclusive of women because the first, um, um, you, I mean, look at Hillary Clinton's experience. Right. And before her, there, were, there was at least one black woman, right, who ran for president. And people even act as if they, that didn't happen you know, Shelley Chisholm. So look, this country has a lot of work to do with an inclusive um, kind of democracy, building democracy. But you know, so democracy is not, a, it's an ideal. It's not a done deal. Right. And America is an example of that. So if you are thinking of people being able to go to the polls, how about all this voter intimidation thing that's going on in this country? How about the fact that the post office started removing uh, blue post boxes from neighborhoods to prevent people from having an easy time of voting? And all the stuff that the current president is saying about what he's going to do and, uh, you know, um, how people are cheating at the elections when there's no evidence of it. So this country still, there's the, you know, Georgia, the, the Georgia governorship election had so many problems. This country also still has voting um, machines that flip the vote. So let's kind of say if it was a presidential uh, vote and people vote for, uh, for, for Biden, there are machines that would flip it to Trump. And then people say, oh, well, you know, those machines just malfunction. There are places where the machines break and they tend to be in areas where minorities are predominant, where poor people are predominant. So 
you know, there is a lot of problem with that kind of thing when you are thinking of democracy. Also, we're thinking about democracy. There's a pandemic underway. People want people to go into unsafe situations just to be able to exercise their franchise. And we saw long lines in at least some of the places where some of this voting went on for primaries. So I think America still has serious work to do in terms of oh, people are going to the polls because still, you know, there's a voting rights amendment that uh, Congressman Lewis was trying to get passed until he passed away and it hasn't been passed. You know, the renewal of the original voting, <laughs> voting rights amendment. Okay, so there's that. There's the fact that when you have all these uh, slowdowns and breakages of machines and so forth, it's happening in brown and black communities and communities where mostly poor people live. Um, you so I have hopefulness, but my hopefulness is not like I have lost my mind. I can see many of the challenges that are on the ground. And I think this country, unlike most people, I mean, most other countries, has the resources to ensure that the conditions are better. Whether it's about, you know, ensuring that people are able to exercise their franchise and vote in very, you know, um, um, in, in, in ways that are, that, that, that are respectful of their right to exist, you know, right. to not catch a, 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 a disease, right. you know, an infection, right. to, to also not have to overstrain this, themselves because they want to exercise their franchise. Because, also because so much blood has been shed in this country, especially by black people, to fight for the right to be able to vote like citizens equal to the white citizens of these United States. Right. Where do so you recommend let's not, let's not be crowded on that. And then, you know, it's good that black, black females are becoming more recognized. But I mentioned Shelley Chisel, you know. Right. Now many people do not even talk about her as a trailblazer. And she was a trailblazer in many ways. She did run for president. Yeah, I lost her. So and she was not treated well. She was not taken seriously, but she did run. Right. Thank you. And she did not let anybody intimidate her. Now, Biden as the opposite of Trump. Well, you know, um, I, I, I encourage everybody who can vote to go ahead and vote. I really don't think that the president that is uh, in the White House right now uh, has shown any kind of um, respect for black people. As a matter of fact, for immigrants, new immigrants like me, he considers us to have come from shithole countries. You know, he... Um, Every time he wants to talk about bad traits among Americans, he, 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 he ties it on to immigrants. And so this is very offensive. It's very xenophobic. It has aroused a lot of hatred among people whose um, xenophobia were bubbling under the, you know, under the surface. Now, you know, those kinds of um, hateful expressions can freely be unleashed on innocent people. So I find that to be very troubling for a country that claims to be a democracy. Because democracy is supposed to be about freedom, 
It's supposed to be about inclusiveness. It's supposed to be about respect for human rights. And this is not what is being modeled by that kind of behavior of calling people names, of vilifying people, of, you know, um, of, of encouraging violence even against people. So, you know. So after George Floyd's oh. massacre and this new uh, and COVID-19 global pandemic and this new election cycle that we find ourselves in, in terms of policy agenda, if uh, Joe Biden and, and uh, uh, Kamala Harris wins this election, which it looks like they're going to vote, we never know. If they do win, in terms of policy agenda, where do you recommend that we start? I mean, it's, it's a monumental... Uh, uh, it's, it's a monumental, how do I put it, uh, uh, agenda to try to deconstruct racism that's been built before 400 years of slavery. I mean, the first American, indigenous Americans that were here, they also experienced <laughs> and, and, and discrimination and so on. But where do we start? If they win this election and they're the next president and vice president to deconstruct, to begin to chip away even just a little bit on this structural racism, what do you recommend? Where do we start? Um, okay, so there are, luckily, there are laws on the books in this country, okay? And then there are laws that have been proposed. So I feel, okay, in terms, I'm a woman also, so the Equal Rights Amendment actually needs to be passed, you know, but that's not a presidential thing. It's about the president signing it after Congress has um, signed. So we need a Congress that is responsive to some of these um, hopes and aspirations. And people have to vote to support that happening because we cannot be looking, I mean, <laughs> presidents can pass a lot of um, what acts um, or whatever, you know, they can, they can make proclamations, but they cannot pass the law. They sign laws that have been passed by Congress, okay? So we need a good Congress. We need the voters' um, rights, amendment also passed, then we need to have, so respecting the laws, ensuring that immigrants are not subjected to extrajudicial processes, that America follows its own laws, is a huge part of the struggle. And you know, there's also international, um, the international stature of the United States has suffered tremendously. Any president that comes in has to rescue this country's reputation from the trauma that it has suffered, you know. Um, there's also the fact that I think there's a need for comprehensive immigration reform. We need strict, um, you know, and um, <clears throat> enforced gun laws because, you know, the way in which people are able to access weapons and go do damage to other human beings in this country, I think is out of control. You know, so there's the whole, then there's also the environment that we have climate change, you know, and we can't afford to put our heads in the sand and say that, oh, you know, America is not going to be part of that. The whole world is saying that there's climate change going on. There are things that need to be done. America has to join and do that. The WHO, the US has pulled out of it. They better join it right away with the next administration. They better fund a lot of the initiatives that the U.S. has been funding that there's been pulled away from. There's the question of Iran also, and the fact that the, you know, there's an agreement 
that again is a multilateral agreement that the U.S. is pulling out of. So a whole lot of all those things need to be done. When I look at the um, the the platform presented by uh, Biden, the Biden Kamala Harris um, um, team, I see it as a progressive agenda. But then I also think that a whole lot of the stuff that is being um, that is being articulated by people who have been excluded from you know, even making a livelihood in this country, it has to, issues of inequality. They have to be addressed. In, those inequalities are not only economic, it's about access to decent medical care, access to, uh, access to medication by people who need it. You know, there are people who have diabetes in this country who, because they are indigent, are having to ration their diabetes medicine, and sometimes some of them have died as a result of it. That shouldn't be happening in this country. For me, I think we should cut back from defense spending and put some of that spending in education, put it in healthcare, put it in, you know, um, in reducing economic inequality. So, um, you know, I, and I see um, that the Joe Biden, Kamala Harris team, they seem to have their hearts in the right place on these matters. As I said, you also need a Congress that is going to work on those issues to meet the aspirations of majority of Americans who are not, you know, extremely wealthy white people. Right. You know, so of course, you, <laughs> the American majority is white, but there are more poor, poor white people than rich white people, you know. So majority of Americans are not wealthy. The interests of the majority is what the, um, the, 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 what good democracy is about. Not giving tax benefits and tax write-offs and tax uh, abatement to the rich when poor people are not even able, there are people who are going to bed uh, hungry in this country. There are people who are food insecure. There are people, like I said, who are skipping medication. Some of them have died as a result of it. This country should not, you know, allow this kind of atrocities to happen. And then the number of people that have died as a result of COVID, the number of infections, it's scandalous, you know. So better planning that puts people first is what needs to happen across the board, whether you are looking at the economy or you are looking at social issues or you are looking at politics. This is Truth and Reconciliation with Buki Shunoga. We'll be right back. The background music for this program is composed and produced by Femi Shunoga Fleming. You can find more of his music under the name Sad Noise and on iTunes, Apple Music, Bandcamp and, and Spotify. I want to go back to how you identify. You said something earlier about America America will never let you forget that you're not from here. And you also made a personal reference that people will not understand how much pain, frustration that you went through to get where you are today. And but Nigerians are the most educated, most successful African immigrants. And Nigerians were meet conservatively about 30 to $40 billion to Nigeria annually. Someone in your 
in your place right now, your status. I mean, and rightly so. You've worked really hard. We, we celebrate you yeah. in our community. We celebrate you in the diaspora, a powerful black female Nigerian-American that's done so well for herself. How, if you're still saying that America will never forget where you're, that you're not from here, what about people that are just getting here or that have been here that are African immigrants or other immigrants that, that are not even finding their ways with all your accomplishment if you're still able to say this, which I believe, what do you, what do you think that is wrong here that we, that we, well, making? you know, so some people, um, like I said, um, so it took me 14 years after having a master's degree mm-hmm. to get a PhD out of Columbia university. Okay. And it's a long and interesting story, but I wouldn't go into it. It was supposed to have taken me no more than four or five years. My husband went to NYU. He also had a master's. It took him four years. Okay. Um, It's also, so in those 14 years, if I had, if I had gotten my, my plan was to get my PhD in four years. Okay. If I had, I would have had 10 years of professional life. So, now that I'm in my 60s, if you add those 10 years in terms of what I've paid into social security, what I've saved in my supplemental income, I would be better off. Right. Okay? So this thing about, oh, you came, I didn't come to America with a dollar in my pocket. I had a bachelor's degree. And I dare say the people that I studied with are people who are now um, vice chancellors, you know, ministers, and so forth. People I'm senior to are ministers in Nigeria, right. and they're doing well. So I am, you know, <laughs> Where did it take idea, years that, you the idea that I can only succeed in America is not something that is part of my own thinking, okay? Because the people I went to school with and members of my family did not come to America and they're quite successful. They're comfortable, okay, in Nigeria. Right. So um, I don't think that, and you know, I think when we had a conversation uh, earlier, mm-hmm. I, told, I said to you, there are Americans in Nigeria who are living such good lives in Nigeria that they would not be able to live in the U.S., okay? So the fact that I'm comfortable here is testament to the fact that I am a professional. When you are a professional, you know, sometimes you have skills that are needed in a place that maybe somebody else cannot provide. And so, and a, you know, you will be more uh, accommodated than people who don't have those skills. I do think that your country of origin loses out because my foundation was in Nigeria. Nigeria paid for my, for, my, for my bachelor's degree. I was, you know, I, I even received a stipend when I was in second, you know, it was a different time. Nigeria was flush with money. And I was, I, was, I was trained with the idea that you are going to be a leader in your country. You are valued. When I came to the US, it was very different. It was like you are a non, you're a non-entity, you know. And that takes some getting used to. So right. I'm not, you know, uh, not, not being treated as if you are equal to everybody else. It's traumatizing. 
I agree. Be treated as though when you are out on the street, you are a potential criminal. It's dehumanizing. And it's part of reading in the newspaper every day that black people cannot pass SAT scores when it is the fact that black schools, the schools in black communities are not as well resourced. Right. as the schools in white communities and then this is attributed to some kind of maybe uh deficiency in how black people are able to reason it is traumatizing okay because it is not a reality it is something that is produced as a result of the structural conditions in this country you know so when people come here yeah you know for me i think migration should be liberal anybody that wants to move anywhere in the world should be able to move to wherever it is they want to move whether they're going for education which is why i originally came to this country or they're going for tourism or they're going for you know adventure or you know they're going for a job the way we do things now is that if you have certain skills and a country doesn't have that skills they would poach you from wherever you know, but when you come here, you still have to come and deal with the race relations in America. Right. And so when you get out of the cocoon of the places where you are known as who you are with what you know, you are going to be traumatized. Right. This is why black men are stopped on the street and asked to account for themselves and they're treated in very brutal ways before they know that, oh, this is who you are. In spite of, thank you, in spite of how people uh, feel, especially you know, African immigrants or other immigrants, in your, in, in your shoes, but why do people stay in America? In spite of the accomplishments, in, in spite of racism, in spite of the fact that they, can, they would do much better in their own country and live a better life. Why do people stay? What do you say I, to I have that? to leave my children. I had children here. I would have to leave my husband, you know and go to Nigeria. And you know what? I've made my peace. Um, the way I deal with my longing for Nigeria is that every year, I study Nigeria as my country of focus. Okay. Mm -hmm. So every year I go to Nigeria several times. I also, you know, I collaborate with Nigerian um, colleagues. I work on, I, I, I am an activist in Nigeria on issues like bring back our girls, on issues of ensuring that we increase the percentage of women in elected um, positions. I mentor junior colleagues and peers uh, in my profession, you know, so I stay connected that way. Mm. And so, you know, um, my being away from Nigeria is not a total loss. I also am going to retire, you know, and right. then I'll go back to Nigeria and continue to give back. So, you know, asking the question, why are people staying? People stay for any number of reasons. They should not have to justify why they're staying. Like I said, the equal measure thing is that when the Americans leave Nigeria, the ones in the oil companies, the ones in the um, international organizations that are living the excellent life, very, very privileged life in Nigeria when they all leave and they say, oh, I can't stand Nigeria. I want to come back to America. That day I'll pack my bags and I'll be gone. So people, professional people 
live in many different places and they undergo the stresses of being out of their place of origin, you know. Um, and they are, but they may be rewarded in terms of the pay that they receive, which is probably better than most. But, you know, as a professor, you don't even earn that, you know. <laughs> if I'd gone on Wall Street, I'd be retired by now. Okay. Look, looking at the I'm education. Not that well paid. I'm doing what I'm doing because this is a commitment for me. Right. And, you know, I don't think I have to justify, but I've told you, you know, my family is important. I have children now. I have a grandchild here. Right. Um, you know, um, absolutely. I, I was, and then I have looked for jobs in Nigeria yeah. and I haven't been able to, and Africa, I haven't been able to get one. If I get one tomorrow too, I believe. <laughs> I don't you know, think you would because the job that would reward me uh, in terms of my intellectual capacity and also in terms of me being able to meet my expenses. Yeah. I would I, I'm not really, you know, um, I'm not, there's nothing here that is superior to anything else out there in the world for me. Well, your family, you know, very important. Yeah, my family is very like, important. And the fact that I had young children, now they're grown. So right. I can actually exercise my options more uh, now than ever before. So with the education system here, let's start from, from, from scratch. With mm -hmm. uh, school segregation, is still the same. People are segregated by zip codes, right? And like, yes. as you said earlier, there are not enough resources in those communities. And the fact that they're segregated, segregated continues to create inequality from that level up maybe throughout their life, multi-generational. So coming here from another country, what do you think makes you excel, whereas someone else that, that, that's born here, that, that's, that's a, let's say a black American, might not be able to have excelled the same way? In other words, you, you came here, you, I mean, you already have a bachelor's degree. That makes a lot of difference. Absolutely. Um, it may be a better education as well. But what about, what from that point, what were the, what were the uh, challenges that you degree, You know, I had a bachelor's degree. Before you came. And I grew up in a place that made me feel as though I didn't have to justify my existence. I grew up with people the children who were lived in me. Right. What you know, you so structurally in Nigeria, there, there was nothing that was holding me down and telling me that I can't accomplish anything I set my mind to. So if African-Americans have those same conditions, that structurally there are no barriers put in your way. And, you know, there are people who, are, who act as agents of these structures. You know, so young children in schools, are discouraged by guidance counselors who should be encouraging them to strive and to go for the best. We were just talking you about know? this yesterday. Then you have schools that don't have that don't have the same resources. They don't put enough good teachers in the in the poor communities. They don't give those poor communities enough of the materials. You know the extracurricular stuff that rich. Um, Rich communities. Is have. that deliberate, you think? You know, the way in which you also, the whole surrounding environment, when you turn on the TV, it doesn't do anybody any good to be looking at TV and then they're saying to you every day that your people are criminal, that your people are the ones who won't accomplish, your people are the problems, and all this kind of stuff. So, those are the things, you know. And when I came, the reason why Colombia took 
14 years is that people did all that crap to me. Mm. There were people who would assure you that you were going to fail an exam. And the only reason they're saying it is because you're black. You know, there's the whole environment and how some people are made to, 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 to feel like they belong. And other people have to justify their existence. There's the fact that you see whole programs and there would be no faculty of color. You know, well, there would be no, no students in advanced PhD of advanced PhD status. Or if they start, they don't finish. You know, so, you know, there's nothing wrong with African-Americans. There is something wrong with America and how it treats African-Americans. Because if you are subjected to that kind of horror, it is destructive. It's destructive to the psyche and it's destructive to the spirit. And, you know, so by the time you succeed, you're exhausted. Right. So, <laughs> you're even saying this, citing these personal experiences at a higher education level. What about the primary school level? Right now, we're still, still segregated. What do you, how do you, what do you I, say okay. to the segregation <laughs> so of the zip code? One of the things I learned as soon as I had and children was that you couldn't, um, you couldn't leave your child's education to the vagaries of the circumstances. So you have to ensure that your child gets into the best possible school. And there are all kinds of barriers that are put in your way, you know. So there are rules that the Department of Education here in New York has about the zip code you have to be in to apply to certain programs. Many of, these, of, the best, of, the, of those best programs are in predominantly white communities, okay? By so design. As a black parent, you have to jump through so many hoops to ensure that your child goes to the best school if you want them to go to public school. And I did have to do that. By the time it was my second child, I decided when he was in junior high, because somebody, I mean, he was beat up, people took his jacket, they stole his stuff. I decided to put him in private school. You know. So and then I had to go and confront and argue with teachers who were, not, who were being racist with my children, you know. And the way in which those people approached me, if I wasn't confident, if I didn't, one person, as soon as I got him, she said to me, oh, um, let me introduce myself. My, um, I'm, I'm uh, ABD history from Columbia University. So I said to her, well, I'm PhD from Columbia University, political science, okay? So what is the meaning of <laughs> And what she was trying to do was to tell me that she was some kind of expert and whatever it is I came to discuss about my child, which is about the curriculum in history mm -hmm. and the fact that she had given my child an assignment that said he should make an advertisement for selling slaves. And I said, what is the purpose of this assignment? So she wanted me to know she went to Columbia University. And, you know, if you don't have any confidence, these teachers, some of them would intimidate you into silence. The guidance counselor in that same school, which is one of the best schools in New York City,
city where if 2,000 children take the exam, 200 would be picked, you know. Mm -hmm. This guidance counselor told my son, don't bother to apply to the, you know, Ivy Leagues. Just apply to the slam dunk Same school. thing I went through. I was just saying this yesterday. Okay, so, I mean, if you have to yeah. labor, if, if I am not, um, I, you, so, if I'm not calm, and I went there and I blew up in that guy's face, they'll say I was a crazy black woman, emotional black woman, angry black woman, and I would be disregarded. I had to make sure that my son understood, you know, okay, so this, and I said to the guy, look, if I don't actually care in terms of um, whatever it is my child does, but what's in this child's um, educational records makes that kind of advice appropriate. This was a child that was in the 95th percentile, 99th percentile, you know. So why are you telling him this? And he had no explanation. So, you know, this is a very, it, it's very traumatizing to realize that, you know, the way people approach black children is different sometimes than how they approach white children. Right. And when you prime children in this way to think that they are less than, that they can't do, that, you know, there's something wrong with them, you create a self-fulfilling a self prophecy. Because those teachers, those guidance counselors, they're authoritative figures. And children tend to believe what they hear from them. So it's very, it's sad to me that this is how this country still operates, you know. So you have this advocate moment for... in history, in the 20th century, the 21st century, this is still where we are. Right, thank you. As an educated, well-educated parent, you are able to advocate for your children every step of the way. What about children that are still in segregated schools throughout the United States, deliberately being left behind with inadequate resources, inequality and all that, that stems from, their, from the time they're four-year-old in pre-K to throughout their life? If you can talk about being traumatized or feeling traumatized at a PhD level with all your education, resiliency, and, and the cultural groundness you came from, imagine this kids that no one is there to advocate for them or even know how to advocate for them. And they're so segregated in schools that do not have resources or have their interests at heart and no black qualified teachers. Um, so one of the things that um, black parents have to do is, so, you know, in the schools my children went to, there, were, there was the regular parents association. And then the black parents also formed their own association. And we supported one another and we shared strategies. And we also uh, ensured that we interacted with the school mm. as a body because there's unity in, I mean, um, in number, uh, there's strength in numbers. Mm -hmm. So I think that, you know, parents have to do that because sometimes some people don't like confrontation, you know. Um, some people also don't have the language. To, to, to confront and to insist and to be tenacious until you get the result, you know. So that needs to happen. But I do think, um, okay, so sometimes also 
if those um, parents, those parents can be supported by the larger community. Exactly. You know, um, so that the larger community... They're segregated. They live in segregated housing. They live in segregated schools. I know, I know. But they are professionals. Right. And there are people who are highly credentialed in many um in many localities yes so i think you know i was saying to i belong to this um group and part of what we said was you know we all have a responsibility yes to share our um, networks to share the ideas we have with younger people so that you know even if that school does not if the parents in that school don't have enough um maybe information or strategies, there could be a body that they could refer to and get assistance. So I think we all have to be our sisters and brothers keepers in that way. But really, one of the things we have to do is also to work on institutions, right. to, 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 to force many of these schools to do the right things. So we have to be interested in the school boards, you know. Yes. And maybe run for office in school boards to ensure, I don't know what the rules are, maybe you have to be a parent, but to be really actively involved in the policy aspect of things. Right. And not just the policy making, but the implementation of policy. So take an interest in what is going on in the local black school, you know, and make sure that these people are um, encouraged to do the right thing. Also, being a mentor right. to young black children so that they see that you know okay um this person is doing this and this person looks like me and so that means it's possible for me too right. so until we see the um the structural change that we want we all have to do this work to ensure that whatever um whatever knowledge whatever talents whatever um, strategies we have, we share with our neighbors, you know, so that we help to make better conditions. And so I do this on a routine basis and I encourage everybody that can to do that too. And then, you know, we, I think we immigrants, African immigrants, we need to really study American history. We need to look really beyond the surface. Right. And we need to understand that, you know, some of the opportunities that we have are actually not available to African-Americans. And so we need to build coalitions how, how is that? and what support you one another. You know, there are some people who don't like to hire African-Americans and they like to hire Africans because they find Africans more docile, you know. Mm. Africans are not going to challenge mm -hmm. them the way African-Americans would. And then there are people who also may do it hmm. because they want to show that African-Americans cannot be successful, hmm. you know. And we play right into the game and we say that we are this and that. And, you know, you said that we are very well accomplished. That's true. But, you know, there are studies that also show that we are not earning income that is commensurate with our skills yes. and knowledge and experience because we are black, okay? So whatever it is we think we've accomplished, we could actually have accomplished more if there was fairness and justice and equity towards black people here. So we better recognize that. And I do recognize that.
Because, you know, I told you about those 10 years I lost and what that could have added to my income, you know. And then there are also, you know, the uh, the best jobs are still reserved for white people in this country, you know. The the best paying jobs with the best perks. And that's why every time a black person breaks through that glass ceiling, it is celebrated. So we would have made progress when it is routine and expected. That as long as you work hard, you are going to get, you know, make progress, you know, um, in a routine way. When that happens, I'll relax and I'll say, oh, America has got there. Two more questions. I'm not impressed. Right. Right. On that note, what you're just saying right now, what is your view on reparations? Talking about you lost 10 years. What about people that lost 400 years? I'm very well aware of that. That's why I support African-Americans. That's why I identify as black. Yes. You know, I think reparations are necessary. I think those reparations, they must be humongous because of the amount of brutality and exploitation and marginalization that has occurred. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in terms of, um, of um, truth and reconciliation, that they, they have to be a retelling of history. That's what we're doing. To accurately reflect the contributions of non-white people to this country. Right. And that reflects also the brutality that they have been subjected to, you know. So the reparations, yes, I support you from Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate your time. Uh, lastly, but not at least, at least for now, I would love to invite you back. When we talk about education inequity, it's not only in America, even in Nigeria that we, we yeah. come from. What is happening right now in Nigeria is another atrocity, in my view, in terms of across the board, but education especially. Mm-hmm. What is your experience uh, in, in education, quality of education in Nigeria? Uh, a lot of private schools have sprung up and they're doing really well, but public schools have been again, denied of resources, <laughs> the same thing we're talking about here. Well, what, do, what, what do you say to that? How, how can we do anything? And I'm sure you've been doing a lot. Oh, well, you know, I think you must know that I don't support inequity. Right. Um, and the quality of education in Nigeria has declined seriously. Yes. The problem before was that the you know the the coverage was inadequate you know mm. um i think now more people are able to go to school at the k to 12 level you know but um nigeria also has the most out of school children in the world about 12 million mm. majority of them are girls you know um the the, the quality of the schools the schools are under resourced many of the schools as, you know, the, the physical plant, there are such eyesores. The roofs are leaking. There are no windows. The, the ventilation is poor. The toilet facilities are virtually non-existent. There's no running water. Mm-hmm. Children are hungry. The, the teachers, the classes are, <laughs> are huge. Teachers are poorly trained. So a whole lot of problems. When it gets to high, even up to the higher education level, you know, because the quality of education that I received in Nigeria, in the universities in the 1970s, 
is not the quality of education that is available today. Right. And yes, there are good uh, private schools, but there are a lot of very bad private schools also. So I think the quality control in terms of education that is delivered to Nigerian children, more work needs to be done on it. Plus, another thing is, you know, if you look at the budget for education in Nigeria, it is atrocious. And I think, you know, in terms of policy, where you put your money eh, is an indicator of what you care about. Nigeria clearly doesn't care about education because the children of the elite are not in those schools. Right. So they don't, they don't care. You know, if you look um, at graduation season, you know, on, <laughs> luckily COVID has prevented that this year. You see all these Nigerian big shots in all these Ivy League and elite schools all over the world taking pictures with their children. That's where their kids go. They don't go to Nigerian universities. In Nigeria, they go to the very wealthy, well-resourced schools, private, where, you know, for a poor person, they would have to work about 10 lifetimes and they can't even afford to put their kids through those schools. So our <clears throat> politicians and the elite, they don't care about the quality of the schools because their own kids are not going there. That has to stop. A country that wants to develop has to know that education builds human resources. And it's one of the ways in which upward mobility is most guaranteed of all the strategies that can be pursued by a country. So for me, education is as important as a marker of national security as defense, okay? Mm -hmm. So Nigeria needs to clean up its act. And it's not going to do that except Nigerians who have the voice and the gravitas speak to these issues and insist on it because after all, we're a democracy. What can the diaspora do on that? And that's my last question. The diaspora can take an interest in education and start agitating and pushing for increased budget, better training for teachers. More teachers also have to be hired. Um, you know, the schools have to be centers of excellence where we know that the children are our future. If we put all these resources to play in the lives of our children, our country would become that true giant in Africa. As it is now, we're just, we're acting in very unenlightened ways. In terms of the challenges that are before us, we live in a competitive world, okay? So how does Nigeria compare to even Ghana, okay? How does Nigeria compare with its peers in the African continent when it comes to education? Then how does it compare outside of the continent? That should be very, um, it should be uppermost in the minds of Nigerian policymakers, Nigerian parents, whether you are rich, poor, or in between, whether you are in diaspora or not. Because, you know, as people in the diaspora, if Nigeria is not doing well, then Whatever it is we think we are accomplishing here is worthless. Thank you so much. This has been my conversation with Dr. Muchuba Olufunke Okome, an international political economist and professor of political science at Brooklyn College. I'm really grateful that you have taken the time to, to uh, have a discussion with me this afternoon. See you next time. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.